Classic cut from Daryl Cherney, the Northern California political songster. Uh, Houses and Cars, kind of his um, critique of technological society, written way back in that innocent era, back in the 1990s, before there were smartphones and when the World Wide Web was still in its very, very infancy. This is the Counter Vortex with me, Bill Weinberg, and we're going to be ranting on the theme of um, the technological takeover, not just of society, but of the very human organism itself. And I'm going to be doing a reading tonight and a little discussion about this reading from a work called The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. And it's a bit of an irony, actually, because, uh, I mean, you know, C.S. Lewis, to a certain extent, He's a guilty pleasure. Um, this is one of his more um, more serious expository works. He's better known for um, the Chronicles of Narnia and all of that um, somewhat gloppy and syrupy um, children's writing that he did. And the irony is that, I mean, he was a conservative Christian moralist. And yet, in this work, he begins to approach what I would argue is actually something of an anarchist critique of technological society. 
And uh, this is a, a real classic for those who are familiar with his expository works as, to, as opposed to his fictional works. And the ideas which he explores here are weighing very heavily in my mind recently in light of the dilemmas which are posed by the frighteningly fast pace of technological change and especially the hypertrophy of the digital world and the impending privatization of the human genome and the potential for these two sinister trends to merge in the development of a neural digital interface, which um, would essentially make completely render all human thought and experience into raw matter to be manipulated. And this is what I really um, appreciate about this essay and why I think that it's worth reading and worth grappling with, despite the fact that, uh, you know, politically, I'm on the opposite side of the fence from C.S. Lewis. You know, he was a conservative Christian moralist, and I'm a left-wing anarchist. But um, where we, uh, we find some common ground here is that this work really breaks down the abstraction of what he calls, using the sexist argot of his day, man's conquest of nature, and exposes this as actually the use of nature as a tool over humanity by those who control the technology. A few words have to be said before we uh, delve into this work about um, the terminology that he uses. One is that this essay was written during World War II. And you have to understand that, uh, you know, a lot of, um, you know, the, uh, the, the inevitable context for the ideas that he's grappling with have to do with the struggle against fascism. And uh, particularly uh, his warnings about eugenics and his rather dim view of contraception, which, of course, I do not share. I'm a big fan of contraception. Let me make that clear. 100% for it. <laughs> but um, at that time, you know, there was all of this talk about um, selective breeding and creating the perfect race. And uh, after, you know that kind of talk had become associated with the Nazis. It sort of went out of favor for about a generation or so after the Second World War. And then the pendulum started to swing back again. And since the Reagan era, there's been this um, return to a sort of um, genetic determinism. And what the Nazis were trying to do with eugenics and the, you know, today we consider eugenics to be laughable, okay? But um, it was something which was taken very seriously back in the 1930s and the 1940s. And what the Nazis were trying to do with eugenics and with the crude instrument of mass murder seems almost quaint today in light of the infinitely more sophisticated tools of immersive digital reality and direct genetic manipulation, which was not even something which was comprehensible back when C.S. Lewis was writing in the 1940s. An obvious point, of course, has to be made about the uh, completely sexist language of this work. <laughs> I mean, this, first of all, it was written in the 1940s, and second of all, Lewis was an old-fashioned fuddy-duddy, 
even by the standards of the 1940s. So obviously he is using the, the word man in the same sense that we would use the word humanity today. He refers to nature as her. So um, obviously this is all uh, rather archaic. Another problem is uh, he's using the word Tao, something that he picks up from the Chinese tradition of Taoism in a sense which I would argue is, and I know I'm not alone in this criticism, I would argue is um, not quite right. He's rather misunderstanding the concept of the Tao in Chinese mysticism. He's sort of using it as a shorthand for um, a great overarching moral tradition, which is inherent to all of human culture. And this is not really right. I mean, Taoism was not really all that concerned, as I understand it, not all that concerned with moralism. It was more concerned with um, reverence for nature, and it was more of a kind of spiritual anarchism. And ironically, it was somewhat concerned with magic, which is something which, as we shall see, Lewis has some very critical things to say about in this essay. Now, we're not talking about, you know, the um, high occult magic of um, Renaissance Europe, which is what um, Lewis was really talking about, but uh, more of a, um, a folkloric magic out of which um, um, traditional Chinese herbal medicine developed, very much in the same sense that, uh, you know, modern science in the West developed out of, um, out of occult magic and alchemy, something which um, Lewis discusses as well in this essay. Um, but I think that he's actually um, confusing Taoism with Confucianism to a certain extent here. I mean, it was the Confucianists who were the moralists of, um, of ancient China and the Taoists who were more the spiritual anarchists. Just to um, take a brief moment here, I'll read the passage where um, he defines what he means by the Tao. The Chinese speak of a great thing, the greatest thing called the Tao. It is the reality beyond all predicates, the abyss that was before the creator himself. It is nature. It is the way, the road. It is the way in which the universe goes on, the way in which things everlastingly emerge, stilly and tranquilly, into space and time. It is also the way which every man should tread in imitation of that cosmic and supercosmic progression, conforming all activities to that great exemplar. And I think it's in that last sentence that he gets it wrong a little bit and conflates Taoism and Confucianism. And in the very next line after that, he goes on to quote Confucius. And like I say, Taoism and Confucianism are really different traditions. I mean, there's obviously they've coexisted side by side in China for over a thousand years. So there's been some, you know, syncretism back and forth between them, but I still think that they're separate and in some ways contradictory traditions. He goes on to say, this conception in all its forms, Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, and Oriental alike, I shall henceforth refer to, for brevity, simply as the Tao. So just to make clear, that's what he means when he's talking about the Tao. Um, one more thing I'll say before I delve right into his work is um, there's a, a paradox which will become obvious as you, um, as you listen to the selection I'm about to read from The Abolition of Man, that a lot of his critique, if you've ever read your George Orwell, a lot of his critique of uh, technological society mirrors 
that of George Orwell. And um, there's one passage in what I'm about to read from C.S. Lewis' Abolition of Man, which um, obviously mirrors almost, almost verbatim points which are made by George Orwell in his classic essay written just about the same time, immediate aftermath of the Second World War, politics in the English language, about how English lang- the English language was being degraded by our, um, not merely by propaganda, but also by um, technological society's approach to reality. And the reason this is something of a paradox or an irony is that, you know, Orwell and Lewis were on opposite sides of the political divide. You know, just as I am <laughs> on the opposite side of the political divide from C.S. Lewis, I'm with Orwell rather than with Lewis in terms of my own personal politics. And in fact, um, but I have to be critical of Orwell here. There was one, I don't believe that Lewis ever actually wrote anything about Orwell, but Orwell did actually write about Lewis. And there was one essay um, in one of his columns, Orwell actually dissed C.S. Lewis as a reactionary, which in some ways he was, and um, speculated unfairly that he was a secret fascist sympathizer, which he definitely was not. So this is uh, (laughs) uh, a rare instance in which um, Orwell was being really unfair uh, towards um, a particular writer who he was criticizing, in this case, C.S. Lewis. And yet, um, in some ways, as we shall see, their ideas very closely mirror each other. And, uh, you know, they share a, uh, I would say, a common critique of technological society and where it's going. Even if Orwell was coming from the radical left and Lewis was coming from a kind of um, nostalgia for the pre-technological world. Let's jump right in from the eponymous final essay in the book, The Abolition of Man, entitled The Abolition of Man. Man's conquest of nature is an expression often used to describe the progress of applied science. Man has nature whacked, said someone to a friend of mine not long ago. In their context, the words had a certain tragic beauty, for the speaker was dying of tuberculosis. No matter, he said. I know I'm one of the casualties. Of course, there are casualties on the winning as well as the losing side but that does not alter the fact that it is winning. I have chosen this story as my point of departure in order to make it clear that I do not wish to disparage all that is really beneficial in the process described as man's conquest, much less all the real devotion and self-sacrifice that has gone to make it possible. But having done so, I must proceed to analyze this conception a little more closely. In what sense is man the possessor of increasing power over nature. Let us consider three typical examples, the airplane, the wireless, and the contraceptive. In a civilized community, in peacetime, anyone who can pay for them may use these things. But it cannot strictly be said that when he does so, he is exercising his own proper or individual power over nature. If I pay you to carry me, I am not therefore myself a strong man. Any or all of these things I have mentioned can be withheld from some men by other men, by those who sell or those who allow the sale 
or those who own the sources of production, or those who make the goods. What we call man's power is, in reality, a power possessed by some men, which they may or may not allow other men to profit by. Again, as regards the powers manifested in the airplane or the wireless, man is as much the patient or subject as the possessor, since he is the target both for bombs and for propaganda. And as regards contraceptives, there is a paradoxical negative sense in which all possible future generations are the patients or subjects of a power wielded by those already alive. By contraception, simply, they are denied existence. By contraception used as a means of selective breeding, they are, without their concurring voice, made to be what one generation, for its own reasons, may choose to prefer. From this point of view, what we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other men, with nature as its instrument. It is, of course, a commonplace to complain that men have hitherto used badly and against their fellows the powers that science has given them. But that is not the point I am trying to make. I am not speaking of particular corruptions and abuses which an increase of moral virtue would cure. I am considering the thing called man's power over nature and what it must always and essentially be. No doubt the picture could be modified by public ownership of raw materials and factories and public control of scientific research, but unless we have a world state, this will mean the power of one nation over others. And even within the world state or the nation, it will mean, in principle, the power of majorities over minorities, and in the concrete, of a government over the people. And all long-term exercises of power, especially in breeding, must mean the power of earlier generations over later ones. The latter point is not always sufficiently emphasized because those who write on social matters have not yet learned to imitate the physicists in always including time among the dimensions. In order to understand fully what man's power over nature, and therefore the power of some men over other men, really means, we must picture the race extended in time from the date of its emergence to that of its extinction. Each generation exercises power over its successors, and each, insofar as it modifies the environment bequeathed to it and rebels against tradition, resists and limits the power of its predecessors. This modifies the picture which is sometimes painted of a progressive emancipation from tradition and a progressive control of natural processes resulting in a continual increase of human power. In reality, of course, if any one age really attains by eugenics and scientific education the power to make its descendants what it pleases, all men who live after it are the patients of that power. They are weaker, not stronger. For though we may have put wonderful machines in their hands, we have preordained how they are to use them. And if, as is almost certain, the age which had thus attained maximum power over posterity were also the age most emancipated from tradition, it would be engaged in reducing the power of its predecessors almost as drastically as that of its successors. And we must also remember that quite apart from this, the later a generation comes, the nearer it lives to the date at which the species becomes extinct, the less power it will have in the forward direction, because its subjects will be so few. 
There is therefore no question of a power being vested in the race as a whole, steadily growing as long as the race survives. The last men, far from being the heirs of power, will be of all men most subject to the dead hand of the great planners and conditioners, and will themselves exercise least power upon the future. The real picture is that of one dominant age, let us suppose the 100th century A.D., which resists all previous ages most successfully and dominates all subsequent ages most irresistibly, and thus is the real master of the human species. But even within this master generation, itself an infinitesimal minority of the species, the power will be exercised by a minority smaller still. Man's conquest of nature, if the dreams of some scientific planners are realized, means the rule of a few hundreds of men over billions upon billions of men. There neither is nor can be any simple increase of power on man's side. Each new power won by man is a power over man as well. Each advance leaves him weaker as well as stronger. In every victory, besides being the general who triumphs, he is also the prisoner who follows the triumphal car. I am not yet considering whether the total result of such ambivalent victories is a good thing or a bad. I am only making clear what man's conquest of nature really means, and especially that final stage in the conquest, which perhaps is not far off. The final stage has come when man, by eugenics, by prenatal conditioning, and by an education and propaganda based on a perfect applied psychology, has obtained full control over himself. Human nature will be the last part of nature to surrender to man. The battle will then be won. We shall have taken the thread of life out of the hand of Clotho. Clotho being one of the three fates of Greek mythology who weaves our destiny and be henceforth free to make our species whatever we wish it to be. The battle will indeed be won. But who, precisely, will have won it? For the power of man to make himself what he pleases means, as we have seen, the power of some men to make other men what they please. In all ages, no doubt, nurture and instruction have, in some sense, attempted to exercise this power. But the situation to which we must look forward will be novel in two respects. In the first place, the power will be enormously increased. Hitherto, the plans of educationalists have achieved very little of what they attempted, and indeed, when we read them, how Plato would have every infant a bastard nursed in a bureau, that is to say, born out of wedlock because the institution of marriage will have been abolished and taken away from its mother at birth to be raised by bureaucrats, <clears throat> and how Locke wants children to have leaky shoes and no turn for poetry. And here Lewis footnotes a passage from John Locke in which he calls for children to wear shoes that let in the water and to have any poetic instinct in them suppressed. We may well thank the beneficent obstinacy of real mothers, real nurses, and above all, real children for preserving the human race in such sanity as it still possesses. But the man-molders of the new age will be armed with the powers of an omnicompetent state and an irresistible scientific technique. We shall get, at last, a race of conditioners 
who really can cut out all posterity in what shape they please. The second difference is even more important. In the older systems, both the kind of man the teachers wished to produce and their motives for producing him were prescribed by the Tao, a norm to which the teachers themselves were subject and from which they claimed no liberty to depart. They did not cut men to some pattern they had chosen. They handed on what they had received. They initiated the young neophyte into the mystery of humanity which overarched him and them alike. It was but old birds teaching young birds to fly. This will be changed. Values are now mere natural phenomena. The conditioners have been emancipated from all that. It is one more part of nature they have conquered. The ultimate springs of human action are no longer for them something given. These springs have now surrendered, like electricity. It is the function of the conditioners to control, not to obey them. They themselves are outside, above, for we are assuming the last stage of man's struggle with nature. The final victory has been won. Human nature has been conquered, and, of course, has conquered, in whatever sense those words may now bear. The conditioners, then, are to choose what kind of artificial Tao they will, for their own reasons, produce in the human race. They are the motivators, the creators of motives. But how are they going to be motivated themselves? For a time, perhaps, by survivals within their own minds of the old natural Tao. Thus, at first, they may look upon themselves as servants and guardians of humanity and conceive that they have a duty to do it good. But it is only by confusion that they can remain in this state. They recognize the concept of duty as the result of certain processes which they can now control. Their victory has consisted precisely in emerging from the state in which they were acted upon by those processes to the state in which they use them as tools. One of the things they now have to decide is whether they will or will not so condition the rest of us that we can go on having the old idea of duty. How can duty help them to decide that? Duty itself is up for trial. It cannot be the judge. And good fares no better. They know quite well how to produce a dozen different conceptions of good in us. The question is which, if any, they should produce. No conception of good can help them to decide. It is absurd to fix on one of the things they are comparing and make it the standard of comparison. To some it will appear that I am inventing a factitious difficulty for my conditioners, that is to say, a spurious or artificial one. Other, more simple-minded critics may ask, why should you suppose they will be such bad men? But I am not supposing them to be bad men. They are, rather, not men in the old sense at all. They are, if you like, men who have sacrificed their own share in traditional humanity in order to devote themselves to the task of deciding what humanity shall henceforth mean. Good and bad, applied to them, are words without content, for it is from them that the content of these words is henceforth to be derived. Nor is their difficulty factitious. We might suppose that it was possible to say, after all, most of us want more or less the same things, food and drink and sexual intercourse, amusement, art, science, and the longest possible life for individuals and for the species. Let them simply say, this is what we happen to like, and go on to condition men in the way most likely to produce it. Where's the trouble? But this will not answer. 
In the first place, it is false that we all really like the same things. But even if we did, what motive is to impel the conditioners to scorn the lights and live laborious days in order that we, and posterity, may have what we like? Their duty? But that is only the Tao, which they may decide to impose on us, but which cannot be valid for them. If they accept it, then they are no longer the makers of conscience, but still its subjects, and their final conquest over nature has not really happened. The preservation of the species? But why should the species be preserved? One of the questions before them is whether this feeling for posterity, they know well how it is produced, shall be continued or not. However far they go back or down, they can find no ground to stand on. Every motive they try to act on becomes at once a petitio, that is, a baseless premise. It is not that they are bad men. They are not men at all. Stepping outside the Tao, they have stepped into the void. Nor are their subjects necessarily unhappy men. They are not men at all. They are artifacts. Man's final conquest has proved to be the abolition of man. Yet the conditioners will act. When I said just now that all motives failed them, I should have said all motives except one. All motives that claim any validity other than that of their own felt emotional weight at a given moment have failed them. Everything except the sic volo, sic jubeo, I want, I order, has been explained away. But what never claimed objectivity cannot be destroyed by subjectivism. The impulse to scratch when I itch or to pull to pieces when I am inquisitive is immune from the solvent which is fatal to my justice or honor or care for posterity. When all that says it is good has been debunked, what says I want remains. It cannot be exploded or seen through because it never had any pretensions. The conditioners, therefore, must come to be motivated simply by their own pleasure. I am not here speaking of the corrupting influence of power, nor expressing the fear that under it our conditioners will degenerate. The very words corrupt and degenerate imply a doctrine of value and are therefore meaningless in this context. My point is that those who stand outside all judgments of value cannot have any ground for preferring one of their own impulses to another except the emotional strength of that impulse. We may legitimately hope that among the impulses which arise in the minds, thus emptied of all rational and spiritual motives, some will be benevolent. I'm very doubtful myself whether the benevolent impulses, stripped of that preference and encouragement which the Tao teaches us to give them, and left to their merely natural strength and frequency as psychological events, will have much influence. I am very doubtful whether history shows us one example of a man who, having stepped outside traditional morality and attained power, has used that power benevolently. I am inclined to think that the conditioners will hate the conditioned, though regarding as an illusion the artificial conscience which they produce in us their subjects, they will yet perceive that it creates in us an illusion of meaning for our lives, which compares favorably with the futility of their own. But I do not insist on this, for it is mere conjecture. What is not conjecture is that our hope, even of a conditioned happiness, rests on what is ordinarily called chance, the chance that benevolent impulses may, on the whole, predominate in our conditioners. For without the judgment, benevolence is good, that is, without 
re-entering the Tao, they can have no ground for promoting their benevolent impulses rather than any others. By the logic of their position, they must just take their impulses as they come from chance. And chance here means nature. It is from heredity, digestion, the weather, that the motives of the conditioners will spring. Their extreme rationalism, by seeing through all rational motives, leaves them creatures of wholly irrational behavior. If you will not obey the Tao, or else commit suicide, obedience to impulse, and therefore in the long run to mere nature, is the only course left open. At the moment, then, of man's victory over nature, we find the whole human race subjected to some individual men, and those individuals subjected to that in themselves which is purely natural, to their irrational impulses. Nature, untrammeled by values, rules the conditioners, and through them all humanity. Man's conquest of nature turns out, in the moment of its consummation, to be nature's conquest of man. Every victory we seemed to win has led us step by step to this conclusion. All nature's apparent reverses have been but tactical withdrawals. We thought we were beating her back when she was luring us on. What looked to us like hands held up in surrender was really the opening of arms to enfold us forever. If the fully planned and conditioned world comes into existence, nature will be troubled no more by the restive species that rose in revolt against her so many millions of years ago, will be vexed no longer by its chatter of truth and mercy and beauty and happiness. Ferum victorum sepit, the defeated conquered their vanquishers, and if the eugenics are efficient enough, there will be no second revolt, but all snug beneath the conditioners, and the conditioners beneath her, till the moon falls or the sun grows cold. My point may be clearer to some if it is put in a different form. Nature is a word of various meanings, which can best be understood if we consider its various opposites. The natural is the opposite of the artificial, the civil, the human, the spiritual, and the supernatural. The artificial does not now concern us. If we take the rest of the list of opposites, however, I think we can get a rough idea of what men have meant by nature and what it is they oppose to her. Nature seems to be the spatial and temporal, as distinct from what is less fully so or not so at all. She seems to be the world of quantity as against the world of quality, of objects as against consciousness, of the bound as against the wholly or partially autonomous, of that which knows no values as against that which both has and perceives value. When we understand a thing analytically and then dominate it and use it for our own convenience, we reduce it to the level of nature in the sense that we suspend our judgments of value about it and treat it in terms of quantity. This repression of elements in what would otherwise be our total reaction to it is sometimes very noticeable and even painful. Something has to be overcome before we can cut up a dead man or a live animal in a dissecting room. These objects resist the movement of the mind whereby we thrust them into the world of mere nature. But in other instances, too, a similar price is exacted for our analytical knowledge and manipulative power, even if we have ceased to count it. We do not look at trees either as dryads or as beautiful objects when we cut them into beams. 
The first man who did so may have felt the price very keenly, and the bleeding trees in Virgil may be far-off echoes of that primeval sense of impiety. The stars lost their divinity as astronomy developed, and the dying god has no place in chemical agriculture. To many, no doubt, this process is simply the gradual discovery that the real world is different from what we expected, and the old opposition to Galileo or to body snatchers is simply obscurantism. But that is not the whole story. It is not the greatest of modern scientists who feel most sure that the object, stripped of its qualitative properties and reduced to mere quantity, is wholly real. Little scientists and little unscientific followers of science may think so. The great minds know very well that the object, so treated, is an artificial abstraction, that something of its reality has been lost. From this point of view, the conquest of nature appears in a new light. We reduce things to nature in order that we may conquer them. We are always conquering nature because nature is the name for what we have, to some extent, conquered. The price of conquest is to treat a thing as mere nature. Every conquest over nature increases her domain. The stars do not become nature till we can weigh and measure them. The soul does not become nature till we can psychoanalyze her. The resting of powers from nature is also the surrendering of things to nature. As long as this process stops short of the final stage, we may well hold that the gain outweighs the loss. But as soon as we take the final step of reducing our own species to the level of mere nature, the whole process is stultified. For this time, the being who stood to gain and the being who has been sacrificed are one and the same. This is one of the many instances where to carry a principle to what seems its logical conclusion produces absurdity. It is the magician's bargain. Give up our soul, get power in return. But once our souls, that is, ourselves, have been given up, the power thus conferred will not belong to us. We shall, in fact, be the slaves and puppets of that to which we have given our souls. It is in man's power to treat himself as a mere natural object and his own judgments of value as raw material for scientific manipulation to alter at will. The objection to his doing so does not lie in the fact that this point of view, like one's first day in the dissecting room, is painful and shocking till we grow used to it. The pain and the shock are at most a warning and a symptom. The real objection is that if man chooses to treat himself as raw material, raw material he will be. Not raw material to be manipulated as he fondly imagined by himself, but by mere appetite, that is, mere nature, in the person of his dehumanized conditioners. We have been trying to have it both ways, to lay down our human prerogative and yet at the same time to retain it. It is impossible. Either we are rational spirit, obliged forever to obey the absolute values of the Tao, or else we are mere nature, to be kneaded and cut into new shapes for the pleasures of masters, who must, by hypothesis, have no, mo have no motive but their own natural impulses. Only the Tao provides a common human law of action, which can overarch rulers and ruled alike. A dogmatic belief in objective value is necessary to the very idea of a rule which is not tyranny, or an obedience which is not slavery. 
I am not here thinking solely, perhaps not even chiefly, of those who are our public enemies at the moment. The process which, if not checked, will abolish man, goes on apace among communists and Democrats, no less than among fascists. The methods may, at first, differ in brutality, but many a mild-eyed scientist in pince-nez, many a popular dramatist, many an amateur philosopher in our midst, means in the long run just the same as the Nazi rulers of Germany. Traditional values are to be debunked and mankind to be cut into some new, fresh shape at the will, which must by hypothesis be an arbitrary will, of some few lucky people in one lucky generation which has learned how to do it. The belief that we can invent ideologies at pleasure and the consequent treatment of mankind as mere specimens, preparations, begins to affect our very language. Once we killed bad men, now we liquidate unsocial elements. Virtue has become integration, and diligence, dynamism, and boys likely to be worthy of a commission are potential officer material. Most wonderful of all, the virtues of thrift and temperance, and even of ordinary intelligence, are sales resistance. The true significance of what is going on has been concealed by the use of the abstraction man. Not that the word man is necessarily a pure abstraction. In the Tao itself, as long as we remain within it, we find the concrete reality in which to participate is to be truly human, the real common will and common reason of humanity, alive and growing like a tree and branching out as the situation varies into ever new beauties and dignities of application. While we speak from within the Tao, we can speak of man having power over himself in a sense truly analogous to an individual self-control. But the moment we step outside and regard the Tao as mere subjective product, this possibility has disappeared. Man's conquest of himself means simply the rule of the conditioners over the conditioned human material, the world of post-humanity, which some knowingly and some unknowingly, nearly all men in all nations, are at present laboring to produce. Nothing I can say will prevent some people from describing this lecture as an attack on science. I deny the charge, of course, and real natural philosophers, there are some now alive, and that's what um, those who studied nature were called in the ancient world and then again in the Renaissance, will perceive that in defending value, I defend inter alia, the value of knowledge, which must die like any other when its roots in the Tao are cut. But I can go further than that. I even suggest that from science herself, the cure might come. I have described as a magician's bargain that process whereby man surrenders object after object and finally himself to nature in return for power. And I meant what I said. The fact that the scientist has succeeded where the magician failed has put such a wide contrast between them in popular thought that the real story of the birth of science is misunderstood. You will even find people who write about the 16th century as if magic were a medieval survival, and science, the new thing that came to sweep it away. Those who have studied the period know better. There was very little magic in the Middle Ages. The 16th and 17th centuries were the high noon of magic. The serious magical endeavor and the serious scientific endeavor are twins. One was sickly and died, the other was strong and throve. But they were twins. They were born of the same impulse. I allow that some, certainly not all, 
of the early scientists were actuated by a pure love of knowledge. But if we consider the temper of that age as a whole, we can discern the impulse of which I speak. There is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem has been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. For magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both, in the practice of this technique, are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. In Paracelsus, the Swiss alchemist, the character of magician and scientist are combined. No doubt those who really founded modern science were usually those whose love of truth exceeded their love of power. It might be going too far to say that the modern scientific movement was tainted from its birth, but I think it would be true to say that it was born in an unhealthy neighborhood and at an inauspicious hour. Its triumphs may have been too rapid and purchased at too high a price. Reconsideration and something like repentance may be required. Is it then possible to imagine a new natural philosophy, continually conscious that the natural object produced by analysis and abstraction is not reality, but only a view, and always correcting for the abstraction? The regenerate science which I have in mind would not do even to minerals and vegetables what modern science threatens to do to man himself. When it explained, it would not explain away. When it spoke of the parts, it would remember the whole. While studying the it, it would not lose what Martin Buber calls the thou situation. Its followers would not be free with the words only and merely. In a word, it would conquer nature without at the same time being conquered by her and buy knowledge at a lower cost than that of life. Perhaps I am asking impossibilities. Perhaps in the nature of things, analytical understanding must always be a basilisk, which kills what it sees and only sees by killing. But if the scientists themselves cannot arrest this process before it reaches the common reason and kills that too, then someone else must arrest it. What I most fear is the reply that I am only one more obscurantist. That this barrier, like all previous barriers set up against the advance of science, can be safely passed. Such a reply springs from the fatal serialism of the modern imagination. The image of infinite unilinear progression, which so haunts our minds. Because we have to use numbers so much, we tend to think of every process as if it must be like the numerical series, where every step to all eternity is the same kind of step as the one before. There are progressions in which the final step is sui generis, incommensurable with the others, and in which to go the whole way is to undo all the labor of your previous journey. To reduce the Tao to a mere natural product is a step of that kind. Up to that point, the kind of explanation which explains away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. But you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something 
is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent, because the street or garden beyond is opaque. How if you saw through the garden, too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Okay, that is most of the final essay in the book The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, eponymously entitled The Abolition of Man, which despite my uh, political disagreements with Lewis, <clears throat> I think is uh, something which, an essay which bears further consideration for our time, and one which, uh, even though it was written way back in the 1940s, uh, very much foresaw precisely the dilemmas which we're dealing with today in the 21st century. He talks about post-humanity, and today we have, you know, the so-called transhumanists who are actually foreseeing and looking forward to as a positive thing the actual transformation of the human species into something which is no longer human due to um, its integration with technology. And, you know, there's two uh, distinctions here between what Lewis was talking about. First is he foresaw that this could happen perhaps in the 100th century <laughs> common era, or AD as he put it. It seems to me that it's quite likely to happen in the 21st century. And um, when Lewis was actually, you know, to a certain extent talking about um, post-humanity in moral terms, whereas now it's actually quite possible that we could be seeing some kind of post-humanity in actual biological terms. The actual human species is going to be transformed into something biologically distinct from what it has been for the past millions of years. And the really critical thing about this essay is that he's illustrating how the whole concern about the technology falling into the wrong hands or being used for the wrong ends is beside the point. There needs to be a critique of the technology itself and the process by which it advances, quote-unquote, to use a loaded word, and under whose control and at whose expense. Now, to touch on I guess, some of the areas where I... Uh, differ with Lewis a little bit is um, he describes Vidal as seeking to conform the human to reality. And uh, obviously there are some aspects of reality and much which is justified in the name of quote-unquote traditional morality such as stoning adulterers and hashish smokers to death in Afghanistan or attempting to ban abortion and gay marriage here in the United States <clears throat> that should be ruthlessly resisted and overturned, obviously. And in fact, Lewis himself betrays his own quietistic ethic at the end with his call to arrest the process that he describes. But um, when even the righteous ruthlessness of revolutionaries steps outside of traditional morality altogether, you get monsters like Stalin and Mao and what we really need to struggle for, and I'm not being glib about this because it's a very difficult proposition, 
is some kind of a humanistic revolution. And what makes it a difficult proposition is that I thoroughly understand the oppressive forces which have propelled revolutions in the past into ruthless instrumentality. So uh, arresting it is a tricky proposition, as the whole technology question is a tricky question. Now, I'm all about smashing, that is to say, overthrowing with all possible haste capitalism, white supremacy, and patriarchy. Am I about smashing technology? Well, it's a temptation. I will confess that. But I think it's a temptation that we have to resist. Like the ruthlessness of Stalin and Mao is a temptation that we have to resist. So I'm not a primitivist, even if in my heart of hearts, I wish I was. Just like I'm not a pacifist, even if in my heart of hearts, I wish I was. Because we're not merely creatures of heart, but also creatures of mind. And my rational mind can see the dangers of a purist position on this question. But I do think that it is necessary to have a critique of the technology and to question and sometimes to resist its advance. Again, to use that loaded word. So I'm not calling for a great purge, but I am calling for a step back from the brink and for what Lewis called a reconsideration and something like repentance. Be in touch and let me know what you think. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon. Join the resistance and talk on you next time. controlling the clothes. User unfriendly, taking big bites. Go!